The Cood Street Review of Science Fiction was originally ironically named by Russell B. Farr of Ticonderoga Publications. Back in the day, when I was looking to start a what proved to be a one-shot non-fiction magazine, Russell was you know would come to visit me. I lived on Cood Street in uh, Mount Lawley in Western Australia. And when I said I was going to start this magazine, he said, well, oh, that'll be the Cood Street Review of Science Fiction. And so was founded everything that came after, name-wise. Um, there was indeed an issue of Cood Street Review of Science Fiction. It was supposed to be a multiple-volume magazine. And then there was a very briefly published online short fiction review column that I wrote for myself. It's something I still may return to. I, I intend to, I mean to, and if I do, who knows? But in 2003, I started to review a whole bunch of short stories. And I thought it might be fun to look back, uh, do audio recordings of one or two of those as part of this series of short, one-shot kind of projects that I've been doing here on Cood Street. So here we go. May 2003. Uh, to set the stage, Golden Griffin, who had was being run, run by Gary Turner at the time and was quite prolific, ha- was producing a novella-length chapbook by the great Howard Waldrop called A Better World's in Birth. Of it, I said on the 7th of May 2003, if there is such a thing as conventional wisdom about about the writings of Howard Waldrop, it goes something a little like this. Appearing on the scene in the mid-1970s, he delivered a string of beautifully written, unique, oddball entertainments that could most easily be described as alternate histories. While a solo novel didn't appear until the mid-80s, the stories that came were rich and wonderful, starting with his classic collaboration with Steve Utley, detailing the role of the biplane in the Wild West, moving on to the story about dodos in the Deep South in the early 20th century, and then on to stories like A Dozen Tough Jobs and Do You Do You Want to Dance, which seemed to pretty much be the apiothesis of his art. And then... And then came the less immediately accessible stories about Mexican wrestlers, flying zeppelins, and Fats Waller, and other strangenesses. Stories that went into his 1997 collection, Going Home Again, which seemed to pretty much lose genre commentators, principally because they were both dense in historical illusion, and uncompromising in their willingness to explicate themselves to those unfamiliar with their subject. A story like You Could Go Home Again is a case in point. This long novella was originally published in 1993 and dealt with Thomas Wolfe's return from the Tokyo Olympics in the early 1940s and featured uh, T.E. Lawrence, Fatswaller, and others. On a first reading, it offered little to many readers who were unlikely to be familiar with Wolfe or with many of the characters or situations that Waldrop was describing. While repeated readings of the story revealed a certain coruscating brilliance, it was hard to avoid the accusation that for the majority of readers, the story was decidedly thin and inaccessible. And such has been the reception for a number of major post-going-home-again stories, from Hearts of Whiteness to Major Space from the 20th Century. I suspect that Waldrop's major new novelette, A Better World's in Birth, due to be published in July by Golden Griffin as part of their chapbook series, uh, will be received in a similar way. It is in Waldrop parlance, The Communist Ghost Story. Set in 1876, it details how the ghosts of people's revolutionary leaders Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx, and Richard Wagner have been haunting residents of the communist city of Dresden, and how Officer Rienzi from the People's Department for Security looks into Wagner's background to see if there is some explanation for these strange events. As with Waldrop's recent work, it is rich in allusion to historical events and persons, to the music and life of Richard Wagner, and to much else to to list here. It is in many ways as though someone had taken a 500-page alternate history novel on the subject and reduced it to a 10,000-word story without leaving anything out. 
on one hand, it's a masterpiece of condensation, and in many ways, it's a fine, fine story, and I've no hesitation recommending it to anyone. However, I would add the caveat that, like most 21st century Waldrop, you get out of it what you put in. Waldrop is so that he expects the readers to, to do 50% of the work, but it's well worth the effort. Note, the book isn't going to be in most stories, so you have to direct, get it direct from the publisher. I'd add that the story really hasn't, not much has been said of the story since then. The case of Howard Waldrop hasn't changed much. He's still not widely read at the moment. He's not very prolific for, for personal reasons. Um, but I, you know, one, one hopes that he will continue to be a major player in the field, or at least in the background of the field, that he'd be remembered and talked about and thought about. If you've never encountered his work, his first collection, Howard Who, is, in my opinion, an absolute classic. It's essential, it's whimsical, it's exce- it's just brilliant. Probably, it, you know, still the easiest way to access the, you know, these stories is through the two volumes that Michael J. Walsh at, at Old Earth Book published back in the mid-2000s. And I recommend them both, uh, the, the book of short stories, book and velas, unhesitatingly. There's also a spectacularly good, if you can get on the used book market, um, omnibus of uh, All About Strange Monsters of the Recent Past and uh, Howard Who called Strange Things in Close-Up. If you could get that, you would be onto really good money. It appeared only in the UK. I would have to say that it's one of the best introductions to, to Waldrop. His uh, novel Them Bones is also intriguing, but that's that's the gold money. In fact, if I could encourage a UK publisher to republish anything, maybe it would be Strange Things in Close-Up. So... What else did I review back in the day? I was I was having a look to see if there's something else that might possibly be of interest. Um, and who knows, maybe at some point I will deliver more reviews to you. This is a short Cood Strip Squib. There will be more short Cood Strip Squibs in, uh, on other days. I'm just not really sure what the next one will be. Let us wait. Oh, oh, here's a quick one. Let's do this. I didn't, I don't remember having written this. In April of 2003, I reviewed Basement Magic by Ellen Clagius. And I said of it, the main issue of mag- the magazine of fantasy and science fiction opens with Basement Magic, a novelette by Ellen Clagius. Editor Gordon Van Gelder describes the story in his headnote as a Cinderella tale for the space age, and that sums it up pretty accurately. Basement Magic opens with Mary Louise, a small six-year-old girl who lives in a huge, almost empty house with her father, her capricious stepmother, and a series of housekeepers, reading her favorite book of fairy tales and desperately trying to avoid being noticed. In a sequence of note-perfect scenes, Clagius builds up the character of Mary Louise and the housekeeper, all the while increasing the tension as it seems likely that some truly terrible fate is going to befall her. That Clagius handles the whole thing without ever stepping into mawkishness or easy sentiment is a triumph. Basement Magic strikes me in a sense as a, an archetypal fantasy and science fiction story, and is definitely amongst the finest short stories I've read this year. Hmm, I'd stand by that. I'd point you to uh, Ellen Clagius' spectacularly good short story collection, uh, Portable Childhoods from Tankion, which contains Basement Magic, if I recall correctly. In September of 2003, I took a moment to review what was then the latest of the Dragon Grail stories by Lucia Shepard, a story called Liar's House that was published at Sci-Fiction. This is the review I wrote at the time. I've always hated dragon stories, hated the entire elf-dragon-unicorn axis. The very notion of high fantasy causes my saliva to get thick and ropey, but as an exercise I was attempting to create a dragon whom I could respect in the morning. 
Lucia Shepard, quoted from, an, actually from somewhere, I should say, just a quick aside, that I don't remember. Anyway, how do you write a story about something that you neither like or respect? How do you find worth in something that you don't value? For Lucia Shepard, sitting under a tree at a Michigan State University uh, during the Clarion Writers Workshop in 1980, the solution was to make that something so big, so central, that it became background. His dragon grey wall would be 750 feet high at the mid-back, and from the tip of his tail to his nose, he was 6,000 feet long. But the great dragon would be no active participant in events. For millennia earlier, he'd been struck down in the great battle with a wizard that had left him completely unable to move. His heart had stopped, his breath stilled, but his mind continued to seethe, to send forth gloomy vibrations that enslaved all who stayed for long within range of his influence. Shepard said a story in a country far to the south, in a world separated from this one by the thinnest margin of possibility, where Garul physically dominated the western section of the region of the Carbonalis Valley, and psychologically dominated the inhabitants of the entire town, and eventually city of Tausinti, literally the ear of God. That psychological domination, subtle enough that no one could be sure of it, though the inhabitants of Teosinti would use it to explain their, their dour character, would provide the motive force for the man who painted the dragon Graul in 1984, the scale hunter's beautiful daughter in 1988, and the father of stones in 1989, a trio of powerful, elegant, and very well-received fables. There was often talk of more stories, even a book, but nothing surfaced until now, nearly 14 years later. In December, Ellen Datlow's Science Fiction published a new Dragon Girl novella, Liar's House. It was expected to be followed by two other new stories, Beautiful Blood and the Tabarin Scale, which ultimately appeared. And they would all be incorporated in, into a long, weird chronicle to be called The Grand Tour, being the greatest fucking story ever written about a man and a woman in terms of dra- a dragon on a rainy March Sunday, halfway along to the gravel pit and under. But what of Liar's House? Set in the days when Teosinti was nothing more than an outsized village enclosed by dense growths of palms and bananas hemmed in between the eminence of Graul and a pine-forested hill, it is the story of Hoto Koteab. Described as a brooding stump of a man, Hoto lived and worked in the nearby Port Chante until, provoked by his wife's unfaithfulness, he murdered ten men in the space of less than an hour. Looking to avoid the hangman's noose, he took flight, eventually settling in Teosinti, where he could live off the money he had stolen from his victims. With little to occupy his time, Hola became obsessed with the great dragon, repeatedly carving his likeness in in wood. However, one day, eleven years after his arrival, Hola's life changes when he sees what appears to be a small dragon flying near Grohl's head. However, when he goes in search of the dragon, he finds only a strange, quiet, beautiful woman, standing naked in a clearing, who introduces herself as Magali, and tells him that, There's no reason to fear, we have a road to travel, you and I. That meeting signals Hota's spiraling descent into increasingly, at what increasingly appears to be Grail's plans for some kind of endgame. Like all of the stories to feature Grail, Lyra's House is beautifully written, morally complex, and utterly entrancing. It also calls to mind the work of the late Avram Davidson. In the introduction to Davidson's collection Lime Killer, Shepard writes that they are rife with his offbeat erudition and playful use of language and voice, but in much of Avram's work that playfulness is underscored by a gloomy, embittered cast of mind. In the stories you're about to read, those qualities are not so much in evidence. There is darkness in them, to be sure, but it's lent a joyful, exotic gloss that reflects Avram's love for the tropic in which they are set. For all that Lucia Lucia Shepard is a very different writer from Davidson, much the same can be said of Liar's House and the Grail stories. These stories are Shepard at his finest, dark but with a joyful, exotic gloss. Liar's House is easily one of the year's best fantasies, but far more importantly, it's a new step on Shepard's grand tour. I can't wait for the next one. 
Sadly, we all will never see the Grand Tour. It didn't appear, wasn't published. What did happen, though, is that uh, a couple of years ago, Subterranean Press published a book called The Dragon Growl, which included all of the published uh, growl stories, including Father of Stones, for which Shepard had little affection. It's uh, you know all we can ever hope for in terms of the Grand Tour. And it, along with Portable Childhoods and the several uh, Howard Walter books I mentioned earlier, are all strongly recommended. Some of the best f- fantastical uh, or speculative fiction, short fiction of the last quarter century and more. Look them out. This is for now, the, you know, the sort of the latest in these short squibs, these short episodes. There'll probably be more in the coming weeks. Until then, I hope you enjoy the Coot Street podcast.